Tony Duchesne here, and welcome to episode 103 of Drinks with Tony. My guest is Rose Anderson discussing her memoir, The Heart and Other Monsters. Hey, big shout out to Devin Ozell in San Francisco for providing coffee for this week's episode of Drinks with Tony. Do you want to provide coffee for an upcoming episode? PayPal $10 to Tony at TonyDuchesne.com. That's Tony at TonyDuchesne.com. And not only will you provide me with coffee, you'll be supporting a podcast about books and writers. Yes, it's hard for me to ask for money. And I'm trying to work on that with my therapist. I'm also trying to work on my codependent issues and how to forgive myself for things that weren't my fault. Have you ever seen Good Will Hunting where Robin Williams tells Matt Damon, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. And Matt Damon is all, I know, I know. And Robin Williams says again, it's not your fault. And Matt Damon says again, I know. Then all of a sudden, Matt Damon cries and weeps and hugs Robin Williams. I'm at the first part with my therapist where she says, it's not your fault. Then I ask her about love. I mean, how do we really know we're in love? And she gives me the hard look like, don't ask me that question. I haven't figured it out. And then we both weep and we punch our stuffed dolls that oddly look like Brandon Fraser in Encino Man. Remember that movie with Polly Shore? And then my therapist reminds me to stay on topic, stay on point, and to get on with the goddamn show. Uh, hi, this is Rose Anderson, and this is Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Rose Anderson. She's the author of The Heart and Other Monsters, a memoir. Hi, Rose. Hi, Tony. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for coming on during a pandemic when your first book is released into the world. It's a weird time. It is. For both the world and a book. <laughs> exactly. What it, What is it like? Yeah, I mean, you... you you got the book contract way before we knew we were in a pandemic. You Long probably before. delivered your final draft before the, we were in the pandemic. Or Yep. Uh, November. Or I think it went through legal in November. So, yeah, we had no idea. In fact, initially it was supposed to come out next year. And then editing was going well and Bloomsbury had an open spot. So they pushed it up until the summer. Of course, not knowing that this would happen, but. Right. It, it, it is what it is. If one of them did know, I'd like to talk to them about future things that are happening. Right. That would be great. <laughs> what, um, what, what, so it goes through legal. What is legal looking for when they're looking, when they're looking at a memoir like yours? Legal review is um, difficult, especially with my book, which deals with drugs and murder and crimes um and suspected murder so i ended up having to rewrite like a fourth of the book in just a matter of weeks um because i needed to hide locations and people's real identity oh okay i needed to adjust the other crimes that are discussed in the book so they wouldn't be recognizable a lot of name changes and then small things like there's a chapter called liar gene and in the original draft, I say, I am a liar. And they made me change it to, I was a liar. Really? So, yeah. So even tiny things like that. It's a really... That's a little... That's that's a fun one, though. Because, there's, I mean, if you think about it, we all lie. Right. And that's what I'm saying the in the day. chapter. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm acknowledging something we all do. In fact, yeah. lying is sometimes a generous thing to do when it's a white lie. When people go, whatever. they go, how you doing? And I say, I'm fine. It's usually a lie. I just right. don't want to get into it. Right. <laughs> we do it all the time. But yeah, they made me change that. Um, yeah, it, it's complicated. 
Wow. I mean, the pub company has to protect themselves. So right, right. I understand, so, but I had no idea it would be this laborious. Well, and speaking of company, I'm not a company. So let's go ahead and just name the real names and, and crimes and locations. Oh, boy. I don't think I'm allowed to. <laughs> <laughs> I, I loved your, are you, are, you, are you fucking kidding me look? <laughs> <laughs> I think I'd get a very upset phone call from a Bloomsbury lawyer if I did that. <laughs> yeah. They, they don't even know who I am. They're just they're like, oh, yeah, God, right? what a, um, yeah, so, so I, I, it must have been so hard to write this book and to just, I, I mean, I don't know, I'm, blo- I'm, I'm putting words in your mouth. You tell me that I'm out of my mind, but I just feel like to, I, I, don't know if it, I don't know if it's cathartic or if it's just like brutal or both to, to just I think write something like this. I think the catharsis comes later. The writing was pretty torturous. Um, and- <laughs> kind of felt like a grief demon I was excising more than anything else. So the actual process, the majority of which took place um, over my two years at CalArts where I got my MFA was emotional and difficult. And I'm very grateful to have a nice spouse who (laughs) comforted me as I read coroner's reports and court documents and researched how someone dies of a meth overdose I mean, I don't necessarily recommend it, right? Like, it's not a um, happy process, but it was a necessary process. And some of the catharsis happens now, now that people are reading the book and I'm hearing from people who are, it's helping them understand family members that have addiction issues or helping people normalize the way they're grieving. So I think some of the healing happened afterward, but certainly while I was writing, it was very painful, um, but it's a painful subject no matter what. So I don't know if I, I think I would have been in pain whether I was writing or not. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's the thing. It's, um, it's such a tricky balance because we get, we get to do things where we write about our tragedies in life and then other people connect with that. And I've had it where, I mean, I still have it where I'm like, because I wrote a, I, you know, I wrote this thing about tragedies in my life. I just, it even skirted the issue. My next book was about even more tragedies, and then I lost my mind and had to stop writing that book. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> family tragedies. Because I'm like, I can't do this. I can't mentally go here, mm-hmm. you know, another year, and um, maybe give me a decade before I can tap into that again. But it's and all, be in therapy when you do, like, yeah, you know, to have self care going on. <laughs> exactly. The um. But, uh, and then afterwards, I was just like, was that even worth it? Was that, you know, part of me is like, am I just entertainment to people? (laughs) Sure. I definitely, you know, when this book first went out to uh, have it sold, you know, there were a number of editors who wanted me to push it into a more true crime um, territory. And that felt a little bit like that. Like, oh, they want me to push the entertainment part versus the like grief part, which I understand. I mean, as a reader, I read true crime. I read mystery. I understand wanting that whodunit hook, but I was resistant to pushing the book in that direction for that reason. And also, I mean, you're you're honoring your sister in this. And so there's there's a point where you're just like, no, 
this doesn't, you know, that can we just add, can we add a um, create a romantic element to this? Is there any right? way that we can add a man that's just kind of, you know, it's like, no, 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 no. I did add uh, early on when my agent first signed me and read the book, he said, um, what it said something like, what do you want the message of the book to be? And I said, that I'll never be okay, but that I have a good life. And he said, well, half of that is coming through really strong right now. So I ended up adding in a chapter about getting married and sort of showing that I've been able to rebuild a life even in the midst of grief. But it was sort of a nod to that, like, not like here, let's put in a B plot of a romance, but let's insert a little bit of the joy that I do genuinely experience. <laughs> that's a really good note though. I, I like that note yeah. because that's, it's staying true. It's staying absolutely true to your experience. Absolutely. What's going on, so. Yeah. It's not a fabricated. Uh, no, it actually happened. It, I, yeah. I got married to a lovely person and it was a happy, joyful event that was also complicated because Sarah wasn't there to, yeah. to be a part of it. The other thing about having a great spouse or partner when you're writing a book, I just, it blows my mind. I mean, I, 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 see, uh, I see people that have their first book come out and then they go, oh, and this is my wife or this is my husband. And I go, and I always say hi and congratulations to them and thank them yeah. for their work because people don't realize how much their, the, um, their significant others play a part. In. Oh, huge. I mean, like the night I got, I mean, emotional support and logistical support my husband Josh is also a writer. He went through the CalArts program right after I finished and we're each other's first readers. I mean, he's read my book more than I'm sure he'd like to admit. So in that sense, you know, I don't really know how I could have done it without sort of like someone always there to give me feedback. And then emotionally, you know, he comforted me and talked me through things and also, you know, things like when my thesis, which was this book was due, he took on the majority of the housework. You know, it's like yeah. every step of the way he was so supportive and I just don't know how it could have come together the way it did without that kind of um, support, which doesn't always have to come from a spouse, but I felt very, very lucky to be with someone who understood. And part of it is, is that he is a writer. So he understands the, the slog. <laughs> Does, um, does he have any younger brothers or sisters or older brothers and sisters for writers looking for significant others? <laughs> he does not. He does okay. not. But if one pops up, I'll let you yeah, know. Yeah. No, we just lost half the audience on that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're all, they're all, Damn. Next podcast. Um, no, yeah, that's really cool. So the, what's, uh, what I love about this is this was your MFA project. You did. Yeah. You, you you got a book out of your MFA. I know a lot of people who don't get book, don't even get a finished draft, much yeah. less a sale. Well, you know, I was a little older. I was, God, how old am I now? I was thirty-two, I think, when I applied for my MFA. I always have to ask my husband how old I am. Um, you think that's older for him? I, that seems about. That seems I like almost young, maybe. Of really young MFA people in my program. So really? if I was the oldest, I, I believe in my year. Oh, wait, at CalArts. Is, Cal, at is Cal that in uh, Southern California? Yeah, it's in Valencia. California yeah, okay, Institute. That's right. It's the Disney school. Okay. Yeah, he I'm started. sorry, I interrupted your answer. No, no, it's fine. Um, I mean, I, I applied, I was teaching in Northern California, and I realized that if I was ever going to be a writer or write a book, I needed the structure of a program. I 
thrive in academic environments and I really like workshops and feed, well, not all workshops, but I like the feedback process. I like mentors. I like being a mentor. So it was, I um, decided that this is what I had to do if I wanted to write this book. And I knew it was going to be this book, which I think helps. A lot of people come to the program not really knowing what they want to write, which is also great because they can figure it out whether they're based on what they're taking and how they're inspired. But I think that you know, I came in with some material already done, not a lot, maybe like 30 pages, but I was able to be pretty focused on it from the beginning. And, you know, if it was another book, I'm not sure if I would have left the program with a sellable manuscript. There's sort of a dark magic when you're writing a love letter to someone that's died that fuels you. So I think that that was certainly part of it. But I, yeah, I was really lucky. I mean, I left the program with the draft that got me my agent, which is very unusual. That's fantastic. Did you, yeah. what was the query process like for agents or did you have a referral? Or? I had a referral. Good yeah. for you. Yeah. I um, had a mentor who referred me Yeah, surprisingly. And uh, it also, it was a referral that was also a good fit, <laughs> which uh-huh. isn't always the case. Um, I think people get so excited at the idea of having an agent and rightfully so that they don't always look to see like, well, is this agent a good fit for my work? And luckily the agent was also, uh, so sorry, Um, Matt McGowan at Francis Golden Lit uh, is a great fit for me and really love the project, even though it's kind of a weird experimental book (laughs) and kind of short. Uh, Yeah, he took it on enthusiastically. We did one round of revisions together and then he sent it out and sold it. Wow, that's great. Yeah. And did you get, um, were there other publishers kind of nudging? and you're Sort saying, of. You know, it's a weird process. Yeah. And yeah, yeah I, um, I didn't really understand it until I was in it. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, what is funny is the, the two editors that showed the most interest, uh, Bloomsbury, who I ended up going with, and Little Brown are actually twin sisters, uh, which I thought was funny. Um, and it made sense to me because the book is a lot about being a sister. Um, and then when Little Brown ended up declining, she sent me a very sweet email saying that she hoped I would go with her sister, Callie, at Bloomsbury. Oh, yeah. And uh, and I lucked out. Callie and Bloomsbury have been a really, really good fit for me. And yeah. Callie's a poet, which helps a lot. <laughs> she really loves language. She's tender but also gives her opinion it's been an I think an unusually good editorial experience for me she ended up reading the entire book out loud to me over the phone over the Did course you tape of four it? days that was the audiobook no I wish <laughs> she would have actually been a great audiobook reader but that was sort of our final round of edits was for three or four days we were just on the phone together she read it sentence by sentence out loud wow yeah it was pretty well, that's magical a great editor I did that I did that when I uh, was doing the final drafts of my first novel, but I did that to myself. So I read the whole thing. And then, and then I, listen. and then as I was taking the bus around town, I would listen to it and like, go, Oh, that sounds weird. That was like, yeah, you can hear that. things that you don't read. And yeah. um, even in terms of like structure, she would like end one chapter and start another. And we'd both go, Oh wait, that's not, that shouldn't go there. Yeah. Um, so that was sort of our last restructuring too, was that, was that um editing calls yeah it was pretty magical 
Yeah, it's not, I, I love the technical part of it. Like when you're on that level of it and you're just like, even with like a screenplay and you're at a table read, it's like it actually gets to a table read and you're just sitting there going, when you hear like people who don't even know how to act, but they're saying yeah. dialogue and you're like, oh my God, okay, that's three lines too long. How do I can Right. <laughs> three lines too long or, oh wow, that sentence really works. I think, yeah. oh, it's so easy even with a book deal to hate your own work. Yeah, and I yeah. was so sick of my own life, and I just, you know, I think at various points in the editing process, you just go, "Oh, no one's going to want to read this." But actually, hearing it, somebody else read it, I was like, "Oh, this—it's pretty good. There's some good parts here." Um, so hearing her do it was good for my writer self-esteem too. And, I, and it's interesting because I feel like a lot of people, and this included me before I really started writing and, get, and like trying to get my work out, is um, you, think, you think writers just write their books and they're just happy and fine with it and have no vulnerability. Oh, God, no. I know. I, I feel like Stephen King is like the only one. <laughs> do you think, like do you think he actually, he's got to have his like... Uh, Honey, can you read this? I don't know, but I ha- I try. I can't read his novels for anything. I love his yeah. essays. His novels just drive me nuts. And maybe he likes them too much, and he should stop and reassess. <laughs> maybe, yeah. Maybe yeah. Stephen's the one who needs it. No, every writer I know, regardless of where they are in their career, career for the most part, has moments where they just hate their work, or they think, "Oh, people are going to figure out I'm not a good writer." Yeah. Yeah, like this is the day everybody finds out. Yeah. <laughs> I can't actually do this. I mean, for many, many years, I was convinced I couldn't be a published writer because I like to write short things. Yeah. I just thought, oh, well, that's, it's not going to work. I'm not literary enough. Yeah. And now they just call it experimental. So, is that what it is, experimental? I don't know. <laughs> I, people call my book experimental a lot. And I think oh. it's just because uh, it doesn't necessarily fall into traditional memoir structure. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. it's all marketing to me. It's I fine. Just, yeah, like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, exactly as long as it gets in readers' hands. I really, you know, personally, I don't care. Doesn't like, really matter. You to get me. it? Yeah. Don't yeah. don't screw up the narrative. Get it into readers' hands. And, yeah, exactly. And let them decide. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. What's um? So I so see you know. Then you you finish the book and you're like, oh, great. Now I now I could just live with this tragedy instead of keep writing about this tragedy, and now you got to do press about this tragedy. What, what's what's that like? I mean, I think that this part has been easier um, than the writing part because I don't know. Talking about it, I'm fairly comfortable at this point. It'll have been seven years um, in November since Sarah died. And four years since I started writing the book. And it's you sort of normalize it when you talk about it in workshop and with your editor and with your publicist and then on, on different things like that. And I think, too, because I am 12 years sober, and so I spent a great deal of the last 12 years talking about addiction and grief in meetings, that talking about it is sometimes easier than writing about it, right? <laughs> Writing gets almost more personal. I don't know why that is or if that even makes sense. But um, I'm used to communicating verbally with people about this kind of trauma. I'm actually in school to become a therapist. So, Oh, and, the, and that's those, the, the best therapists are the ones that have the tragedies. And have dealt with them, hopefully, yes. in a somewhat healthy way. Right, true, true, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
like, you know, I have many like, years of yeah. therapy under my belt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you yeah. don't want your therapist like just popping a pill and you're like, is that oxy? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it gets me through the day, if you know what I mean. <laughs> wink, wink. I'm just numbing my tragedy. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it's been all right. And I think part of it comes down to like the connections being made and uh, hopefully people adjusting or widening their viewpoint on addicts. Yeah. And like I said, I, I read a lot of memoirs after Sarah died that were like grief memoirs. And so many of them point to some sort of resolution. Like after a certain amount of time has passed or enough work has been done, you're going to feel okay. And it felt like I was grieving wrong. I just felt like this is bull. Like <laughs> I don't think I'm ever going to reach a place where I'm going to be okay. And so part of the book was to like make space for people who grieve like that to, to say like, this is normal. It's okay to be a decade out or 40 years out and still feel a hole in your heart um, around someone's death. And so hearing from people that are like, great, someone's finally talking about grief in this culture in a way that's not um, so contained. Uh, that that's been really great. So no, this part has actually been okay. Uh, I like I like that because yeah, I get it. I mean, it's uh, my uncle killed himself, you know, thirty over thirty years ago, and mm-hmm. it's still with me every day. And it's still there's there is no resolution. There's just like a oh, you know, you kind of wake up and go, okay, it's a little less, but it's still there. It's, right. And, it doesn't and, it doesn't go away. But it now it's like now what do I do with that? Right. As I move forward. Right. I think that's pretty healthy. Like, yeah, it's, well, it's not all to be like, do. oh, I'm okay now, but like, yeah, you can be both. I am both not okay, and I also have a really good life. Yeah, and those exist at the same time, and that's perfectly normal and all right. Yeah, and I don't think you know, I don't think any of us really get out of this existence without having a good grief punch in our lives. Some of it, some of us get it younger. Some of us, you know, Absolutely. at some point, the grief it's the inevitable comes. part of life. So yeah, yeah. it just happened. I mean, everybody experiences at some point and some are, you know, less tragic, I guess, than others or some are less, you know, frightening is the right word, but traumatic than others, but it's grief is grief. <laughs> loss yeah. is loss. It's going to hurt no matter what. So, and it's, it's something that in particularly in a, in, Western culture, we don't talk about very much. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what, yeah. I, oh, we can go. I I don't want to veer too far. (laughs) I'll be like, oh wait, that's a three hour conversation. (laughs) We'll we'll lose everybody. Many hours of conversation. Yeah, exactly. What, um, what do you do on the anniversary of your sister's death? Do you have a ritual? Yeah, it depends on where I am. Um, if I'm in Northern California, where we lived and where we scattered her ashes, I go to that spot and I like, it's like a, where the mouth of the river meets the sea. I'll like put some flowers in the water. If I'm in LA, which is now where I've lived for the last four years, um, I just light a candle and I take some time to myself. Her birthday is actually in some ways harder than the anniversary of her death. I think it's this strange like, Oh, she would be this, you know, she would have been 31 this year. Um, she would have been a person, like an adult with, you know, starting to get bad skin and <laughs> all these things. I'm still close with her childhood best friend. They're the same age. And so it's sort of strange seeing her grow up and get a career and get a partner and all these things Sarah never got to do. 
So that's actually um, usually sort of a harder day. And I don't quite have any ritual around then that, although maybe I should. Um, I usually just let myself have a good cry. Yeah. Yeah. Good cries are good. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I don't know if, uh, have you heard of Nick Cave, um, the singer? Yeah. He's got a song called The Weeping Song. And, uh, oh, excellent. I should it's, start it's, listening to it. It's really good because <laughs> it's just one of those songs where I'm having a bad day. I listen to the weeping song, and, you know, mm-hmm. it, and the song is just like, it's a song in which to weep. And I'm just like sitting there going, this is what I need right now. Yes. I have right a sad it. playlist that I listen to if I need oh, to. Oh, what's so on I'll there? have to throw it. I'll, I'll share it with you sometime. Yeah, yeah. Do you, um, what, what, songs are on, do you, what songs are on oh, there? Oh, can... gosh, I'd have to look. I don't even okay. know off the top of my head. But I'll, yeah. I'll share it with you. Uh, I'll have to add the weeping song to that. Yeah, the weeping song's a good one. Because if I'm writing um, a sad scene, which let's face it, my book is a lot of sad scenes, I tend to need to put myself in a sad headspace, so I'll listen to that playlist when I write quite a bit. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I, um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a guy, he's done this blog for uh, many years. He's called, uh, his blog's called Large Hearted Boy. I did it. Yeah, I have, oh, you have a, a I did, playlist. Yeah. There? yeah, there's a playlist for the book. He's great. The yeah. Thing is great. Oh, I was gonna say if you, I was like, if you haven't done it, you have to get a playlist. I in. did it. It was really hard to pick. Was it? <laughs> yeah, all the songs, and you know, yeah, you're like, what? I think probably writers put way more time into it than is needed because we all get obsessive about things. But it was yeah. also really fun to imagine, you know what the playlist would be, why these songs are these songs Sarah would like, or these songs that I less listen to while writing the book. And so it ended up being kind of a combination of all those things, but it was, yeah, it was really fun. The intersection of music and books isn't talked about enough. I feel like. I agree. And I, and it's, it's just like, you get to D you get to do a DJ set of your book and it's yeah. just, I just, I, yeah, I, I'm almost mad at, I think his name's David. I'm almost mad at him for having that idea. Right. <laughs> it's a really good one. It's awesome. <laughs> and it feels like you're in a cool club once you get to do it. Yeah. Just so many neat writers have done it. And you're like, yeah. I get to do one too. Yeah. 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 My mentor, um, Brian Evanson has a couple, uh, on there. Oh, uh, he was your mentor then. Yeah. 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 Oh, very cool. Yeah. We have an event coming up actually with powerhouse books, but he's that? great. That's a good question. I think it's September 8th, but I'll double check. Um, yeah, he was my mentor at CalArts. Yeah, September 8th with Powerhouse Books in Brooklyn, okay. 4 p.m. What's, now, the nice time. thing about events in Brooklyn and Kansas City is now we do them on Zoom from Los Angeles. We do. <laughs> we do. It's great. I've actually attended far more events than I ever would have. Um, I, it, yeah. It yeah. also makes me feel sad. I was going to try to... Um, I was planning on being in New York for Arthur Narcessian's uh, book release in July, oh. you know, before yep. all this went down. I was planning on like living in Brooklyn halftime this year. And now I'm just oh. like, going, okay. Yeah. <laughs> A lot shifted. of plans that are no longer plans. Yeah. Uh, it's strange how quickly the world, um, we were actually at AWP right before the pandemic hit. Where was that this year? San Antonio. Oh, okay. I knew, and it I, almost I got canceled and then it didn't. Yeah. And, um, and we, we did end up going, but it was definitely this strange, like, you know, we got back and there was like a shelter in place within a week. Yeah. And I was like, oh, wow, the world changed very, very quickly. Um, actually, Alia Valls was one of the last people I 
socialize with because we were at AWP together. Who wrote Home Baked? Alia. Yeah. 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 I, yeah. I love her. I'm friends with her and her hubby. She's a delight. We did yes. a, a event together a few weeks ago. She's, she's great. Her book's yeah. great. Oh, she's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's rad. That's come from San Francisco. So those are all my San Francisco people. Yeah. <laughs> well, we both grew up with hippie parents. So I think we bonded over that. Yeah. Yeah. It's very similar backgrounds. Yeah. Um, oh, but so was that your first AWP or had you gone before? It was my first. It was a weird one because, you know, half of the people weren't there. Yeah. Um, which I think honestly was a little better for me. I, it still felt like a lot of people. Yeah. But I got to meet a dear writer friend. We shared the same agent, but we'd never met in person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we just are online friends. And so we got to um, stay together and I got to meet all these neat debut writers. And so I had a blast. I mean, looking back, I think if I had fully realized where the pandemic was going, I probably wouldn't have flown and taken this trip, but it is what it is. And we had one really great trip before the world shut down. So I I would have stopped licking utility poles earlier. Yes. You know what I'm saying? It's just like, Oh wait, I got to change my behavior now. Yeah, exactly. Wash your hands. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Ever. Ever. God. Yeah. Like the first few weeks I was like hazmat suit guy with my gloves coming in. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Yeah. We have to... these things called germits. It's this company where you like attach it to your purse or your belt and you stick your hand in and it's like a little cloth glove to open things. Oh, I like that. Yeah, it's great. And now, now are they disposable or do you wash them? You wash them. Okay. Yeah, they're so, little cloths. So, you, so you, do you use the same one and open it through the day and then you toss it? or yeah. do you? Oh, okay. Yeah, or wash it. Yeah, we have a yeah. couple of them. Yeah. I was at the cafe yesterday because we had, you know, a right around the corner. There's some, which is great. The cafes with outdoor seating. That's Lovely. one beauty thing to be in LA. We're set up to eat and drink outdoors. It's just in like. In fact, we do it no matter what. So yeah, <laughs> yeah it works out. When I first came to LA from San Francisco, that really confused me because um, I just didn't wait. Like, I was just like, no, we'll eat inside. It's just right. it's cold there's all the time enough, in San Francisco. There's also like not enough space for yeah. outdoor seating in San Francisco. And it's. Yeah, it's got a chill to it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, I remember uh, there's this place called Millie's in Silver Lake. I don't know if you've ever been there. It's a breakfast. I haven't. Track. And that was one of the first breakfasts I went to when I came to LA. And they're like, uh, inside or outside? And I looked at them like, inside? You have space available? And they're like, yeah. And the whole, the whole outside's <laughs> packed. They're like, of course it is. We got another Northern California. <laughs> yep, yep. You, yeah, you revealed yourself. I know, and, that, and that's the fun. Of, I, that was this has all been part of the fun of realizing, you know, it's like, yeah, there's San Francisco and Los Angeles, or Humboldt County, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and it seems like, oh, everything's California, everything's the same, but it's not. We have oh, every no. place has its little flavor. It's a so little like fun. micro ecosystems, practically, of, of different communities. It's been fun to live. Um, I spent a lot of time in the Bay Area because my grandma lived in Daly City, and we have good friends who live in Berkeley uh, and it's just neat and also strange to kind of travel between totally different climates, totally yeah. different social scenes. It's yeah. its own little weird, huge state. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. I, I get excited when I, well, I haven't been back to San Francisco since the pandemic, but you know, when I go up there, I get to wear my, my nice jackets. Oh, <laughs> what are jackets? Or I'm like so excited. real <laughs> shoes. 
Yeah, exactly. I'm like, oh yeah. my god, I could put a beanie on. I could look mm-hmm. cool. I miss rain. It's actually my biggest LA complaint is, especially as a writer, I want it to be raining out so I feel good about staying inside. Yeah, and and sitting down with a cup of coffee and writing all day. Oh, rain! Yeah, rain is. Yeah. I, every time it rains in LA and people complain about it, I'm like, shut up. I know. I'm like, just be. let it happen. Just let it be. <laughs> just crash your yeah. cars into each other because you don't know how to drive. That's fine. Right. That part is actually a little frightening. Uh, my school was, you have to take the five up to Valencia, um, and I'm in Sherman Oaks, and every time it rained, there was like seven accidents. Yeah. And I'm just like, what are you guys doing? Yeah. You slow down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they all speed up. Yeah. They're like, I don't want to drive in the rain, so I'm going to drive really fast. Yeah. Bill Bird is this is funny because I, I was like, Bill Bird uh, nailed it when he said um, Los Angeles people when they're on the freeway, they drive like they got a they got an eight ball of cocaine in them. When they're on the surface <laughs> streets, they drive like they're uh, stoned out of their mind. Absolutely, that is an excellent summation of LA drivers. I feel like I just spend all my time in the car going, "Who taught you how to drive?" I'm like an old grandma, like yeah. shaking my fist at all the terrible drivers. I I, I at this point I just go, "All right, you go ahead, you do your thing." I'm yeah, sick of all that's of fair. Yeah. Oh, well, now I don't drive hardly at all, so. Right. How much gas are we saving? In a, in I've this? filled my tank twice in the yeah. whole time. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, think I've, I think I'm on my second or third tank of gas, and that's because I had to go do, like, dental surgeries and other things. Right. Yeah, I had a bunch of doctor's appointments, right? So I think it would have been, like, one. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We'd, uh, we live across the street from a Ralph's and down the street from a Trader Joe's, too. So, oh my God. Walk That's for groceries. New yeah. paradise. Your real estate goes up near a Trader Joe's, I think, right now. Absolutely. Any grocery store, you know, anywhere yeah. where you don't have to drive or spend more time out than you want to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, it's been great for pandemic. So did you, was your, was your husband, oh, your husband was from Nor- uh, Northern California too, right? So you both were from there? Well, he, um, he went there for college and then stayed. So he had been there for like 15 years. We met doing, um, and I'm from there. I was raised there and, um, but I went to school in New York and then came back. Uh, yeah, we met actually in an improv group. <laughs> we were in like a performance improv group together and uh didn't really think twice about the other one until one day we did a game where we had to wrap our arms around each other and i was like he smells good <laughs> that was sort of it yeah the pheromones really worked out for us <laughs> i love that and, yeah. it, and that's the problem with online dating because it's just like you, you get you, why start this long conversation when you can't smell right. a person exactly you have to yeah smell if, if i don't like your smell it's over yeah yeah, and I think it was like a week after that he sent me a message, and I think we we've, we've spoken every day since then. It was awesome. just that was it. Yeah. What? Um, why did you take improv classes? It actually, was it? It wasn't an improv class. It was like a performance. Oh, group. I'm sorry. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, take I it, did I, acting. I, I, in, I made it my own thing. Yeah. I've taken improv classes. <laughs> well, I mean, I should say I I did acting in my undergrad at Sarah Lawrence, and I had, so I had done improv for many many years. Um, mm-hmm. So when the woman asked me to be a part of it, it, you know, it made sense because I, I already knew how to do it. Um, but yeah, that's how we met. We, and we just, yeah, we've been together ever since. He was actually an exterminator when we met, which is a oh weird. Oh my God. 
Totally job. William Burroughs style. Yes. He's in his memoir, which is he's finishing writing is about uh, going through a divorce, not with me, um, and starting this weird, lonely, strange job all at the same time. Oh, how uh, cool. Oh, I love great. it. Yeah. He has like a talking rat in it that follows him around. Oh, my God. This toxic shame rat that <laughs> drinks oh. with him. Um, oh, I want to read that. It's, so I think you will one day. It's great. <laughs> good, good. And then, and then he can use the microphone you're using, and we can. I, and you could, and you could be on the other side. Yeah. <laughs> looking at it. I'll be like, "How's it going?" <laughs> <laughs> the, um, wait, uh, was how long was he married? Because I was, I'm divorced too. That's why I just. Uh, oh. uh, he was married. I feel like I should know this better. They were uh, married no. for a few years. Um, yeah. He yeah. won't listen to this. Don't worry about it. it he's in the next room. Um, yeah, he was married for a few years. I, they got married fairly quickly. I think like yeah. a year and a half or two after being together. I mean, I say that and so did we. Uh, they were just very different people and very young. Three years. Yeah. He's letting me know. They three were married years. for three years. <laughs> um, yeah, he just gave me a funny look. Um, yeah, no, divorce is rough, and writing divor- a memoir yeah. about divorce is uh, yeah, that's that's. Well, and I I think what I really admire about him is he's really trying to avoid the like classic male divorce memoir, which is like trash the ex wife and don't take any responsibility. Um, it is her and, fault though, but yeah, go ahead. Of course, of yeah. course. Um, <laughs> I mean, I will say that like I I had also I had gotten out of a five year relationship when he and I um, met. And I don't know if he and I would have worked if we both hadn't sort of like been through the ringer and like figured some shit out before we got together. So I'm not glad that him or his ex-wife had to go through the pain of divorce, but I'm happy for the person that he is now. Yeah. Um, Because he worked through his shit. Like, yeah. I had this thing when, um, when I was, you know, back when I was dating and it's like, if you hadn't been through a divorce, if you haven't had a long-term relationship, yep. we can't even talk. Even if I right. like you, it's I, you, you haven't, you, we don't, we wouldn't have the same, you know, You're coming even, to the plate unequally almost. Um, yeah. yeah. It, it's just, it, it's fun to go to get, to get that next level in life and find that person. And you're just like, Oh, Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think we both came to the table, like really clear about who we were and what we wanted. Yeah. And we were like, and thankfully they matched. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was strange. We met and then I went to grad school like six months later. So it was not ideal timing. We didn't know if he was going to move or we were going to stay together. Right. Um, and, you know, he grew up in a really like practical household. So we always had really practical jobs. I grew up with a hippie artist mom who was like, do whatever you want. And so, you know, I was obviously like going to grad school for writing, which is <laughs> not the smartest financial choice. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, my, my hippie attitude went out. He moved and he applied to grad school as well. And, uh, yeah, it, and it's all good. And now we're very happy in L.A. with our little writing community. Yeah, and it's um, – and I, I, I don't – I mean, writing's a bad – pursuing writing's a bad idea if you don't have to do it. Because right. it's just – it's so much failure. It's just it because uh, even when you're successful, it's a lot of yeah. failure. It's still ninety percent rejection. Yeah, yeah, and that's on a good day. <laughs> yeah, we've been joking that we want to take all our rejection letters and like decoupage our coffee table with them. That would be rad. Yeah, we're just like we just need to own it. Yeah, all the rejections. 
I got that. some great rejections when my book was going out. Yeah. Yeah, because my agent shared them all with me. And, you know, some of those sentences I can still repeat to myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and and I'm lucky. I sold the book. But, like, the rejection yeah. stuff still stays with you even it when does. you sell the book. Yeah. Or the one yeah. person that told you you'll never be a writer. Right. And, um, but at the same time, like, I had those people in my life. And that fueled me even more when I was like, sure. oh, are you kidding me? Watch this. Right. And then I thought, watch this would be two years and 10, or t- it, made, it was more like 10 years. And I'm like, right. what? I'm like, you know, year five. Okay. Watch this. I'm not so sure. Okay. Whatever. <laughs> I just know I have to do this. Right. But that's the difference I think between people who like the idea of writing and people who are writers is they stick with it when, because they have to, even when it doesn't feel like it's going anywhere. Yeah. Even when they're like, I hate this, <laughs> did they, you ever, they still have to do it. Did you ever think of really pursuing acting? Yeah. I mean, it provides a similar like emotional release for me that writing does. Um, but it's, it's a whole different ball game of rejection even than writing. Yeah. And, um, I'm a curvier woman. I'm not super tall. You know, there was like all these things that like I wasn't willing to like spend my life hating my body or my myself. Yeah. Um, and thankfully with writing, that's not a worry and I can live in my body comfortably and not um, worry about whether or not, you know, that's why someone's rejecting me. But yeah, I really loved acting. It was a really great outlet. But, you know, writing does something very similar for me. So I feel okay creatively. The, the craft of the actor blows my mind because it's, I, I feel like I've learned, I feel like I continue to learn a lot about it. And I was shadowing a, shadowing a director in New York last Ooh. fall. And I went in on the casting session for, you know, for an NBC show mm-hmm. for these people who would get two lines in the show. Right. And it was brutal. And I, yeah. got, to, I got to sit with the, just the casting director and the director and me. And they're looking at me like, oh, God, how do I have? And I'm like, no, no, you don't have to impress me. Just don't even look <laughs> at me. It's fine. And um, the people that did get cast, they saw me on set. And they come up to me after. They're like, thank you so much. Oh. <laughs> like, I'm going, like, seriously, I, did, I had nothing to do with it. But and I was like, how can they go through that much rejection? And, and it, it just kind of blew my mind. And as I, was, as I was walking out and heading to the subway, I went, oh, my God, they, they're in it for the craft. Cause I do the yeah. same thing as a writer yeah. and I don't think twice about it. Of course not. When it's yeah. the thing you love and it, yes. and it's what drives you, that's what you do. It was a big epiphany moment for me to kind yeah. of sit there and go, why do they do that? And then I went, wait a second. Why do I do that on this <laughs> angle? Of course they'll do that. Of yeah. course. I mean, artists are crazy and beautiful yeah. because we keep doing all this stuff despite all the re- constant rejection. Yeah, and it's and yeah. it, and it's that we have to. When I first came to LA and I went to the, like, I'd go see like small plays or whatever. Yeah, and I'd be like, oh my god, that's the guy from Homeland or that you know right. all these people. Where I'm just like, what are you doing in a theater of fifty people? And then later you're like, of course you're in a theater of fifty people because that is you. You do right. have to show up to a soundstage to make a paycheck, and you enjoy doing that too. But yeah, you got to keep the guts going. I mean, I think that goes to writing too. Like I like to write weird speculative flash fiction. I'm never going to be able to probably sell a book of speculative flash fiction, but it's sort of like a happy spot for me. And so I keep doing it and occasionally publish something for no money somewhere. And yeah, yeah, that's my, 
that's my play with 50 people. <laughs> Isn't it great? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's delightful. And you, you do screenwriting, right? Yeah. How's that's that? Why, that's why I, you see I've lost <laughs> a lot of hair. So that, that, <laughs> the, the gray in my beard. Yeah. I've done yeah. I think everyone's gone gray during the pandemic. My spouse yeah, no, is a real nice salt and pepper <laughs> thing happening now. I I got my gray uh, when we were in uh, pre-production and post-production on a Confessions oh. of a Teenage Jesus Jerk. You look at the photos. On, you look at the photos on set. You know when the set photographer was there. Yeah. My hair is just all black. And then like three weeks later, it's just I even had gray chest hair coming. Out. Was like, How was that what? doing an adaptation? Um, it was fun. Yeah. I mean, it was brutal. Um, yeah. It was brutal because it was my own work. But, and yeah. I was the idiot that went, no, I have to be the one that does this, you know. And right. we had a director that agreed. And was like, no, you have to be the one that does this. And I'm like, he gets me. And um, <laughs> so it, it's, it's the hardest thing I'm probably ever going to have to do in my life. But right. uh, Are you glad you did it? Yeah. No, I'm really glad I did it. I'm really lucky that, uh, that Eric Stoltz was just – uh, just so on board with yeah. keeping the voice and, and he's a workhorse and he, and he's a, he's a craftsman for story. Even that, that's a great, even though he doesn't really write, he's just like, he's got that yeah. passion. And, um, and so, and I got to be on set every single day and that was wow. just because of him. We had, we had a producer that was really, that was literally trying to get me pulled off. Set. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> yeah. It was nuts. I got to, I got to write about all that. But, like, yeah, yeah. I was going to say, I want to read that. I think for yeah. every writer who's like potentially a part of an adaptation, they need this story. <laughs> adaptation about my life. Yeah. <laughs> about a book about my life. <laughs> I understand. And I have PAs literally trying to pull me off set. <laughs> oh my God. You're like, no, this is about me. <laughs> I wasn't even that. I was like, no, I, me and Eric have had meetings. We've been discussing yeah. this for a year. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, he wants me here. <laughs> yeah. So he was yeah. the one that, yeah. I, when I went in, when I was on set, the first day on set, the, I was being pulled off set. And then, the, then you know, they all have their walkie-talkies. And I see the AD like this. And I see him look at me and just a look of horror on his face. And so I was like, okay, I got to approach him. So yeah. I was like, hey. I was like, is it okay if you ask Eric if I'm on set? And he's just like, let me find out. You know, and he's just like <laughs> really hush-hush. And he went over there. He's like, rah, 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 rah. And Eric goes, yeah. It's just like, just like, <laughs> like of course. Yeah. It's yeah. like, why are you even talking to me? And then um, he comes up to me. He's like, okay. He's like, you're allowed to be on set, but we want you to be really quiet because I was just like sitting there looking like, what do you think I am? Yeah. No, what do you think I'm going to do? Like have a like dance in the corner? <laughs> well, and I think that was the producer having meetings with everyone saying the ah. problems. It was, it was all an ego trip. Um, that's a lot but, of the entertainment industry. I know. And that's yeah. why that's why I'm just so happy to be on this side, on this part of it where I don't give a shit. I, I gave yeah. a lot of shit about how that came out. And I'm very glad yeah. it came out well. Yeah. As, as far as I was concerned. But I also have a, I don't give a shit about the fame or jockeying. Right. For the, it's no, I just want to keep writing my stuff. Yeah. No, I understand that. I have, a, um, there's a adaptation pitch of my book out in the world right now, but like, I'm very, Rem- I don't know if removed is the right word, but that was like not my intention with writing the book. Um, uh, and I feel like I'm one of the few writers in LA who has like no desire to be like famous or in the entertainment right. industry. It's sort of just, I mean, and a, and a pitch being out in the world doesn't really mean anything other than there's a pitch out in the world. But it it has been interesting to sort of see the incredible hustle that people yeah. go through to get eyes on their work in this industry. It's I don't know how 
everyone does it. It seems so much harder than publishing a book. <laughs> oh yeah, no, it's that's a lot more resources. Yeah. So that makes sense. Yeah. The um, but what would it be like to see uh, you know see you and your sister cast? Um, Pretty weird. Yeah. But also, I mean, kind of beautiful too. I think all at yeah. the same time. I a huge part of why I wrote the book is I wanted Sarah to be a whole person again for yeah. people to see her for all of her stuff, the annoying stuff and the frustrating stuff and the beautiful stuff. So to have that, if it ever did get to some sort of screen, hopefully they would honor that aspect of it and she would get to be a whole person again. And that would be great. Who 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 would you like to be? Like, who comes to mind for the casting of your sister? Oh, for Sarah? <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, I could see a Dakota Fanning or um, Chloe Moretz, sort of a young young female who could pull off being kind of a brat. She uh-huh. was like a beautiful brat. Yeah. Um, that wouldn't, yeah. But it's really hard. People have asked me this question before. Like, who would you want to be? What? <laughs> You're not. Um, <laughs> but it's like a really hard, I, it's, you know, I have no idea. Or put a bunch of unknowns up there. I don't know. And Someone said you? Maggie Gyllenhaal should play me. And I was like, oh God, she's amazing. I don't know. You know, it's really hard to cast yourself. We had to write like a character document. I have a couple writing partners who are doing this with, with me as well as my agent. And uh, to write your own character description is very weird. Oh, like Rose is a, you know, so it's, it's strange to think of it. It's like, uh, it's very meta. (laughs) Well, it's funny. I'd be like, Tony Duchesne is just a honk, a huge honk who is, you know, (laughs) he walks around and, you know, women and men and cats follow him through town. That kind of guy. (laughs) I have the cat part down. If you heard any noise during this, it was my cats. Oh, how many cats do you have? We have two. We have uh, we rescued um, our neighbors rescued a litter of feral kittens last year, and we adopted two of them. And a brother so, and a sister. That's so. Uh, when they're feral, is it okay to have them indoor? Be indoor cats, or are they kind of want a hankering to go outside? No, they're both very much indoor cats. Um, one of them, Maurice, named after Maurice Sendak, who wrote "Where the Wild Things Are," but we uh-huh. call him Mo is like very scared of the outside. And I think yeah. it's like when they were outside, they were like dying. They were like not, Aww. didn't have enough food. So when they were rescued, they were pretty happy to be indoors and well-fed and yeah. very spoiled kittens. <laughs> and what's the other name? Boz. And what is that after? Uh, is that also a literary reference? It's not. It's actually um, someone else initially had adopted Boz in our building and then uh, it wasn't quite working out, so we took Boz. So we we didn't name Boz ourselves. You didn't get to na- Did you try to rename him though? No, she was she was just who she was, yeah. and it was fine. Yeah, and we have a um a thirteen year old Boston Terrier who's blind. <laughs> so two kittens was kind of a a bit much for her, but I think they've all adapted nicely now. Yeah. I don't know what they're going to do when quarantine's over because they all really like having us home all the time. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Like if we leave the house for a couple hours, we come back and they're like, where were you? <laughs> yeah. What, what, there, there's nothing out there for anybody. Why do you think you go yeah, out there? Yeah. Stay here with us with all the snuggles and the treats. Yeah. yeah. We, know, we know cat food just comes from the cupboard. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. There, um, we got a king-size bed recently and 
the animals just treat it like it's their like we bought it yeah. for them. Yeah. They're like, this is so our bed, they, yes. They let you sleep on it. Occasionally. Yeah. Yeah. Thankfully there's now enough room that we can all kind of fit on there. But yeah. Kittens turn into cats, so they're pretty big now. When did you get married? How long have you been married? Uh, two years. Two yes, we just had our two-year wedding anniversary. So it was just a couple months after I graduated and before he started school, we huh. we got married in Northern California. Yeah. What um what did you do for uh anniversary during pandemic? I think we oh we ordered in food from this Italian restaurant we like Antonio's. Um yeah near us and i think we you know what do you do during a pandemic i think we watch something fun so pretty yeah. much like every other night i've never been a big like anniversary or valentine's day person i think there's uh -huh. like so much pressure on those days yeah. so we kind of joke that we have like an anniversary season like from around the time we got together to around when we're married um and we I just like try that. to do like something like a few months <laughs> and we just great. try to do something nice for the other one within that period of time without wow. it being on a certain day <laughs> anniversary season i'm yeah. gonna pitch that to my girlfriend I do like it that a it's, lot. it's a lot less stress than yeah. like like what if you wake up in a bad mood what if you're not feeling well and then like this day that's supposed to represent your whole relationship is right i'm just it's never a lot been of pressure it. it's a lot of pressure to, to go yeah. okay now we you know bad things can happen before and then it's just and then the day of it's almost too much yeah or if you have a season yeah, and it's relaxed. It's a surprise. You know, you're just like, yeah, it's really, I highly recommend the anniversary season for anyone who struggles with the anniversaries. No wonder you're a therapist. Yeah. You, you <laughs> That's like, going to be you my like main point in therapy. Reality. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, I mean, it's funny because uh, when, when we talked about improv, what I always tell my beginning writer students is go take an improv class. Go take an improv Absolutely. acting class. Because it, it, it'll take your writing to a new level. It helps get rid of that self-censor so much. You know? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I never even thought of that. Yeah. Well, you're, yeah. you probably didn't think of it because you're already in it. So I That's yeah. fair. That's yeah. fair. Yeah. Yeah, no, I started writing and doing improv slash acting at the same time. So I, th I definitely think they probably lent themselves to each other Yeah. Uh, way back when I was 19. I, that's rad. And was that in uh, Northern California or was that in New York? Uh, that was in New York. I went to Sarah Lawrence College and I worked with Mary Morris who wrote um, Nothing to Declare and a bunch of other memoirs and novels. Uh, in fact, I just, I was like, we moved from a one bedroom to a two bedroom in our same building during the pandemic. And I was going through papers and I found the very first piece of creating, creative nonfiction I ever wrote in her class when I was 19. And some of those sentences are in the book because I had, was writing about having cancer. It was very neat to see sort of 17 years later, a version of this in a published work. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was very strange and cool. When you were 19 and you're like, you're like, you know, I think I'll write a book. Did you think it would take this long? <laughs> No, I mean, I think I wasn't even trying to write a book then. I think I was like, this will be good. Because everyone, when I had cancer, was like, keep a journal. And I actually really hate journal writing. Uh -huh. um, and then I was like, well, maybe this will be my version of keeping a journal. So I'll take like a memoir class. And so it was just honestly like an outlet for whatever. I had I was not thinking of being a writer at all. Um, and for many years, I didn't think I was going to be a writer. It was just something I sort of did when I felt like I had, like, I needed to. And then 
I actually met Mary like five or six years ago for lunch in the Bay Area. She was on a book tour. She was like, so when are you going to like get, get it together and be a writer? I was like, oh, I guess I probably, sh- if I want to, I should do that pretty soon. Um, and it was like right after that, I applied to grad school. Yeah. So she's, and so she's you're still in support. touch with her. Yeah. She's a great mentor. I, and she was one of your first writing instructors. Yeah. And she was, and I had read her books before I even went to Sarah Lawrence. So she was a, mm-hmm. one of my favorite writers before I even studied with her. So I was a little bit of a like, hi, Mary. Um, yeah, it's been really neat. I mean, both of the primary mentors in my writing career, Mary Morris and Brian Evanson, are writers I also really love. And I um, feel it's always like, I feel so lucky to work with these people whose you know, work has been on my bookshelves for years. <laughs> it's really, really neat. Isn't it kind of surreal to just... Yeah. Like, I, I get this weird thing where I'm like, oh my God. I go to the library and you just walk by books and you're just like, Oh yeah. Oh, oh, that's great to see his book in here. Oh, it's great to see his book in here. And it's just like, Oh no, wait a second. You're friends with people that are all over the library shelves. Yeah. I got to go back to my 20 year old self who would think that could never be a possibility. I think. Yeah. Um, And the writing world is like small and not all at the same time. It's like interesting to see, um, I don't know. It's really neat. I keep saying, joking, because Josh, my husband, also had Brian as a mentor. And we keep joking that we, like, need to get Brian to sign our books. Because, of course, like, you know, you, like, go to a book event and you get this author that you don't know to sign your book. But you never think to, like, ask the person who you work with all the time (laughs) to sign their books. So we have a stack that when the pandemic's over, we're like, okay, Brian, you need to put some time in and sign our books for us. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you gotta have proof. Exactly, that's awesome. our relationship. (laughs) Rose, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's been delightful. Rose Anderson on Drinks with Tony. Check out her memoir, The Heart and Other Monsters. Next week on the show, we have Douglas A. Martin. Stay tuned, keep reading, and I'll see you next Wednesday.